As an industry, we've made it our business to learn about games, how they work, about their resonance, and their successes or failures. But there's a human side to the industry as well. My name is Paul James, and welcome to Dev Diary, a series that explores and celebrates the incredible feats of the people behind the games as we dive into their stories, the highs, the lows, and everywhere in between. In this episode, I'm joined by Mu Yu, current co founder and programmer at Foam Sword. So join us as we explore his journey. So today I'm joined by Moo. How are you? I'm good. Keeping very busy in this crazy world at the moment? Yeah, it's definitely a very, very strange time, but I think this is one of the jobs that's uh, almost the easiest to do in a time like this. Oh, all the, the interviews and kind of publicity side of things? Yeah, I think so. I think it's, you know, it's, uh, it's an industry that works well remotely, but also I think in a time where everyone's at home, game sales are good as well, which is a nice thing for me and my mood. Oh, yeah, I can appreciate that. Maybe maybe we'll dive into that later because there's obviously yeah. been a recent release of um, a certain game that you've worked on uh, <laughs> yeah. on a different platform. So we'll, we'll probably dive into that in a little bit of detail shortly. Cool. Uh, but this is this is Dev Diary, a series where we talk to developers from all around the industry. They share their experiences and stories and, and journeys uh, with the listeners. And Moo, before we get to your career and where it all kind of developed, I'd like to rewind back to the very beginning and kind of discuss some of your first gaming uh, experiences, I guess. Yeah. What was what was amongst the first games that you played? Do you recall what the first game was? Yeah, I definitely remember the first game because it took me, you know, something like 20 years to figure out what it was. Um, but I was just, <laughs> yeah, I was just over at um, my parents' friend's place and their son was playing this game and he showed it to me. And it was like, it was basically chess, but you got to play the battles individually. And I was just so obsessed with this idea of having had played chess, but just the idea of the real-time nature of it, that there being these intricate details inside the characters and all this, like, these pros and cons. And I think there was just something magical about, like, playing the real-time version of it. And it wasn't for another, you know, 15 years that I started actually trying to figure out, like, what was that game? Um, and it ended yeah. up being uh, Archon for the Commodore 64. Um, oh, so I, I think, yeah, that was definitely the first game, I, at least the first game I remembered playing. I don't know if I played anything before that, um, but it definitely left an impression on me such that, like, I think I'd always think about, like, what was that game? But it wasn't until, like, you know, the internet was well established in, like, you know, the late 90s that I was like, oh, okay, well, I could actually probably find out what that game was and try and match my memory to uh, to something out there. Do you feel like that's a game, and obviously we're skipping ahead somewhat to the the career itself but do you feel like that's a game that's inspired any design choices or whatnot that you've made over the journey or is it really just a purely that that was my first game experience and kind of nothing more i mean i think it did sort of show me that like there's a lot of different versions of play and i think it reminded me of like well there's you know board games and there's sports and then there's this kind of interactive simulated thing where it kind of had the intensity of a real and real-time nature of a sport but it had this whole fantastical element on top of it and i just it did stick with me that sort of video games could be this merging of you know real-time intense experiences that you'd have in the real world but in universes that yeah. you could never possibly go to so i think that's something as a concept that did stick with me yeah understood so what were some of the other games that you experienced in those early days? Were there any particularly influential titles or franchises in particular that really grabbed you? I think the one that 
that always sticks with me is probably Tetris, just because Tetris was the one game yep. that I think my parents would play with me all the time. Um, I think there's a lot of times where they would buy games as something to keep me entertained. And I think actually a lot of my introduction to more of the arcade scene was that my parents would go to Vegas every three months and they just dropped me off at the arcade with a bucket of quarters. Um, and so like, I think a lot of the times for my parents, video games were just a way to like babysit me and keep me busy. And Tetris yeah, was one of the few times that my parents would actually sit down and play with me. And I think that always reminded me that, you know, that games do have this potential to sort of like draw people together, draw families together, be a thing that, you know, actually can be the, the centerpiece of a social experience. Um, so yes. I think that's probably the other early one. I think there's a lot of like beat em ups and stuff like that I played as a kid, but none of them really had that lasting impression on me. And I guess what was it about Tetris you think that just lured the parents in? Obviously, there's so many millions of people around the world that have played Tetris and continue to play Tetris. But what do you think it was for your parents that really kind of caught their eye? I think it was the the fact that like when they saw me play it, they could immediately understand how to play it. I think a yes. lot of the other games I played, they would sort of see what was going on on screen and see what I was doing and just sort of like there was definitely enough disconnect that they wouldn't engage. They wouldn't be like, oh, I know how to join in on this. Where Tetris was one of those things that I think they just immediately understood. And like, I actually kind of have some early memories of, I think like on the Atari 2600, my dad tried to play combat with me and he just didn't get it. Um, and so I think Tetris was like the first thing that like both my mom and my dad, they both fully understood. They, you know, felt you know, they felt really comfortable jumping in. And I think they actually felt comfortable playing with each other as well, which was sort of like a weird, unique experience for me. Bringing them together through video games. Exactly. Or more, more together through video games. <laughs> well, I mean, I guess with my parents, it probably was bringing them together with video games. Oh, okay. <laughs> right. Um, so how, how did your taste kind of develop? Were there particular genres of games that you started to latch onto as you, as you grew older? So I think the next stage for me was probably like, I definitely went through... I played a lot of Civilization and Doom. Um, yep. And I think Civilization was just something because I had so much time when I was young. But Doom was sort of one of the first things I started playing with my friends. We'd play like either local multiplayer. Or we'd actually like bring our computers around to each other's houses and do LAN parties and stuff like that. Um, but I think the thing, the next sort of big phase of video games for me was when I played Final Fantasy VII. And just. Ooh, very good choice. Yeah, absolutely. Like the. It was sort of just a huge step up in terms of like, you know, I, I think when I played Archon, it made me remember realize, oh, I can make the player imagine this world, but it, it's not a world that exists in the game. It's it's a lot more, these are hints to trigger your imagination to think of a world, where Final Fantasy VII yep. was the first game where I'm just like, I'm just literally looking at this amazing world. Like, you yeah, know, there's probably... Into it. Yeah, I mean, and I think that was sort of mind-blowing for me for a game to have that much depth and that much story and that much gameplay complexity. Um, so I definitely played, like, you know, the Final Fantasy series. Um, Xenogears was another one of my favorites from that era. Um, just the idea that you could tell these, like, epic storylines um, in a video game just never crossed my mind before. I mean, you're a man after my own heart with all these JRPGs. So <laughs> you're, really, you're really speaking to me there. Was there a game at all in particular that you feel maybe put you on the path towards development or maybe steered your interest that way? Or did you purely fall into it in some ways? Yeah, I mean, I think I think we did a tiny bit of like 
modding. I remember with Civilization, we were editing text files, and with um, Command and Conquer, um, we found like um, one of these like WAD file editors. I mean, they, yep. WADs were the Doom files. I don't know what the Command and Conquer files were called, um, but it would let you like you know modify units or like build maps and stuff like that. So, like in some sense, like I had some experience like tinkering with games, but I don't think I actually like ever married up that concept with the idea of actually having a career in video games um so what did you as as you grew older and you know, i guess you're getting towards that point where you're starting to make some choices about what you might do in the future was games at the forefront of that point or was it still one of those far off in the distance ideas that would be fantastic if but i need to look at doing something else with my life like was there was there something else that you were uh focusing on potentially yeah, I mean, I, I, I have to admit that, like, when I was sort of at that age where you would think about your career, I was, like, such a weird, like, pretentious nerd. Um, <laughs> but, like, not in the, the way that I'm a pretentious nerd now. Like, I was really into philosophy, and, like, I was obsessed with, like, free will and ethics and moral philosophy oh, and right, a lot okay. of this kind of stuff. Like, so, you know, The Good Place is, like, one of my favorite shows in the modern day just because, like, you know, it's my something that... Swears by it. Yeah, exactly, that, that hits up on that that nerd part. And um, I think I was actually very, very interested in, you know, becoming a university professor studying philosophy. Yeah, um, okay. But as soon as, like, I told my parents of that plan, like, you know, when you're a Chinese-American and your parents move to the country to give you this opportunity to go to university in America, like, they, they're not going to let you major in philosophy. So they basically gave me, I think, three choices, and it was either I could do pre-med to study to be a doctor, I could do pre-law to study to be a lawyer, or I could do engineering of some sort. And so of those options, you know, computer science seemed like the one that... That I think, I think because spoke I, to you the most. it spoke to me the most, but also my high school, we were lucky enough to have a computer science course. And so okay. I took that when I was in high school and I just felt like I kind of got it more than most people got it instinctively. So I thought like, oh, well, this is an easy path forward. So like I can do that computer science degree and it wouldn't be that big of a challenge. And then on the side, yep. I could be studying philosophy, which is my real passion. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, I went to UCLA and studied uh ended up doing three majors actually i did computer science and engineering is one major cognitive science is a second and philosophy is the third so what point did uh the transition kind of occur because yes you're in engineering but you've still got your eyes on the philosophy prize um at what point did you start to actually genuinely get pulled in that engineering direction and start to realize that actually this is for me yeah i think i think i was always good at engineering so like I, you know, I'd always take as many classes as I could at any given point in time. I think at the time, like a full course load was 12 units at UCLA, and I would usually take somewhere between 30 and 45 units per quarter. Um, and it was, you know, so like what? I was just, you know, a, a complete workaholic, and I just wanted to learn everything I could. I thought this university like experience was incredible, and I just wanted to take in as much as I can. And so I, I felt like I was good at good at the computer science part and I was doing well in classes so I think I think I didn't know which way I want to really go professionally I wasn't really thinking about it I was just trying to do as much work as I could and learn as much as I could but I just you know sort of stumbled into an opportunity um, I was actually in my graphics programming class and there was an assignment where you had to like use OpenGL calls to like 
make a bunch of primitives that would animate in some way and a lot yeah. of people would like have like you know circles rotating around each other something like that but like being you know my other nerdy part was computer science uh, i mean uh, video games and i was obsessed with final fantasy 7 and so like i made a rendered scene of cloud strife walking on a grass t- like on a animating grass field and you overachiever you yeah, yeah definitely <laughs> uh, i think i think once i got started i think that's the thing with me in anything is like once i get started into something i just get i become obsessed and i just dig deeper and deeper and deeper into it and there yeah. happened to be another student in that class that i unbeknownst to me worked in the video games industry and he saw my demo and he was just like oh um would you be interested in doing an internship um at our is company this flip side yeah this was a flip side yeah, and he's like, would you like to do an internship at our company? I'm like, I don't really know if that's what I want to do. But then he started talking about, like, Final Fantasy. I think it was Final Fantasy Nine, and he was looking forward to playing Final, Final one. Fantasy Nine at E3. And I was just like, how do you go to E3? He's like, oh, anyone that works in the industry can get a pass to E3. I'm just like, well, like, can, can I go to E3? Like, can I borrow your pass? Can I do whatever? He's like, no, but, like, if you do take this internship, like, you can apply for a pass to E3, and you can go. And I was like, oh, um... I guess then sure I'll do the internship if that will get me into E3 um and so yeah I, I, that was sort of the beginning of my career in video games and like I I don't think it, it never occurred to me that I could make video games and I think even if it did occur to me I don't know if I would have thought that I wanted to um but then like as I said like once I start doing something I just become obsessed <laughs> and I just want to learn more and more about it and it's a deep deep well game development so there would be a lot oh, yeah. to learn at that point yeah, I mean, I still feel like I'm learning every day now, and it's been 15, 16 years on. So, so how was that? How was that trip to E3? Uh, I assume just eyes wide and yeah, just it was, soaking it all up. It was amazing. I could, I just couldn't get enough of it. And it's so funny because, like, you couldn't pay me to go to E3 nowadays. Um, but like, you know, the first year that I went, I just couldn't believe it was just. It was just so magical to me. There were so many games that were unreleased that, like, I was, you know, tracking every single smidge of information that was being released on the internet, you know, obsessively. And, like, I was queuing up to, like, play these games. And, like, I could go back to all my friends and report to them and tell them, like, you know, what it was like. Um, and then, you know, every now and then spotting, like, some famous developer walking, you know, down the hall or this thing or that. that and I just... Like I definitely felt at home. I think that was something that I don't I don't think I realized at the time, but like now looking back at it, like the first time I went to E three, I really did feel like, oh well, this is sort of like a celebration of something I love and I feel so comfortable in this space. Yeah, okay, understood. So out of interest, because you, you did mention you couldn't uh, you couldn't be paid to go to E3 these <laughs> days, uh, we obviously hear a lot of chatter, I guess, on kind of the media and influencer side as some of their issues with E3 these days. And let's let's remove the fact that obviously this year it's been cancelled because of uh, the world situation. Um, what is it on the development side there? What is it for you that kind of makes E3 no longer appealing? I think it's that I've I've sort of seen how the sausage is made. Like I don't think it's that. Oh, okay. I mean, I mean, E three has probably changed as well, but I think it's more that I've changed. And it's that like this idea of like you know access to a pre release game, like you know the idea that I would have time to play post release games nowadays is just laughable. So like the yes. idea that I'd be obsessed with you know playing pre release stuff, but also it's just it's so busy, it's so loud. I mean, I probably I think I remember. Like, probably it was my fifth or sixth E3 that I went to, and I was just like, I don't think I'm ever coming back to one of these. Like, I'd rather, you know, I'd rather play a game 
in my home, you know, in comfort and be able to enjoy it rather than like trying to like just, you know, get the best experience I can, not being able to hear anything, being surrounded by people, having the time pressure of someone queuing behind me, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah, I completely understood. No, the, I mean, the, the sausage being made analogy is yeah. probably perfect in that respect. And I, you know, you hear similar sort of things from various different media outlets these days. And I'm sure there's plenty more developers that are speaking about E3 in the exact same lens. Yeah. Let's let's not ignore the the whole giving away of people's addresses and whatnot as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They're, they're on a roll there. Uh, so flip side, uh, that, that time there, uh, very valuable to you, I assume? Yeah, definitely. I think th- there's a handful of key moments at Flipside that just sort of gave me the confidence that I could be you know, a professional game programmer. Um, when I started, the first task they had me do was to write the bug database um, so we could start logging bugs for our various products. Um, yep. And then they put me on um, a prototype team for a new game idea that they had. And it was a senior programmer and me. And I mean, I feel really awful about this in retrospect, but basically I was doing such a good job on it compared to the senior programmer that by the end of my internship, we shipped the game. They fired him because he hadn't done anything. Um, All right. and, and I basically single-handedly shipped my first game. Um, and, and, you know, they, they ran it for several months and it became like the top game on their platform for a while. I mean, it wasn't my idea, right. but like, it was just one of these things that made me feel like, oh, I've actually made something and it shipped. And I was like performing as well as one of their other engineers. Um, so like, it just felt like, well, maybe this is a career path that I could be taking. Um, and so where did, where did the journey lead from there? Because the, the internship I've got listed tw- 2002 for that. And then yep. how did things kind of transition, transition from there? Yep. So literally the same guy that got me the internship there, moved to a company called Cush the following summer and got me another internship there. Um, yep. and I think that also, you know, boosted my confidence massively. Just the fact that he went somewhere else and he was like, Oh, you got to pick up this guy. Um, cause we have a lot of work to get done and that guy gets work done. Um, and so Cush yeah, has basically feedback. Exactly. Yeah, I was like, uh, I was their UI programmer, basically, and it was they were making sports games. And I, I had no idea how many screens that sports games had. Um, but the first one was a hockey game and it had like 120 UI screens that needed programming. And oh, I would wow. just, yeah, I would just go in and be like, all right, let's see if I can do like five or six screens today. Um, and yeah, it was, it was crazy. I think, you know, because I think UI bugs are, they're a lot smaller, more modular, and a lot easier to fix. I think by the end of that summer at that company, I was actually the number one bug fixer in terms of like number of bugs fixed. Not because I was like the most skilled, but just because like so many UI bugs are like this thing needs to move this many pixels or this text is wrong yeah, or, okay. this, or whatever. But like, I think I think it did give me a lot of confidence. Um, and then they even offered me a full time job at the end of that internship. Um, but I had like, you know, a couple more months to finish the university degree. So I did end up going back. And then following, following Kush, there was a stint at Insomniac. Yeah. Just a a small studio. No one (laughs) really knows too much about them at all. Uh, let's, let's talk a little bit about Insomniac because obviously, yeah, they're, they're a big name developer in the, the industry, uh, in recent years or in the last year, become a PlayStation first party studio. And obviously that wasn't the case when you were there, but you worked on some of their, their big franchises in the form of Ratchet and Clank. Yep, absolutely. So I worked on Ratchets 3, 4, and 5. So Ratchet and Clank, Up Your Arsenal, and the two after that. Um, And so as much as going into somewhere like Flipside or Kush and feeling like, oh, you can 
Like, I could sort of, like, keep up with these guys, and it built my confidence up. <laughs> and Somtech was the exact opposite. Um, you walk into those doors, and everyone is so incredibly good at what they do that you immediately realize that, like, you know, you're leaps and bounds below these people. Um, and it feels terrible on one hand. And I think now that I have the, the comfort of looking back on it, it was wonderful because that means you have this, this access to so many brilliant people that are willing to teach you all this, you know, all this kind of stuff and all the tips and tricks of the video games industry. But I remember the first couple months there, I was just bricking it. Like I was just, I had no confidence. I was so afraid. Um, I know the guy that um, started at the same time as I did, and actually the guy that got the position I interviewed for and started at the same time as I did um, got fired within like three months or two months maybe. Oh, right. Okay. And so I was just like, oh, no, like I'm not going to make it here. Like they're way too good. Um, and I've made this terrible mistake thinking that I could work in the video games industry. Um, you were just waiting for the other foot to drop. Exactly. Yeah. I, I was just, you know, freaking out. But luckily... Um, there was just one guy who sort of took me under his wing. His name was Tony Garcia. And he sort of taught me everything I know about programming or game programming, to be honest. And so he's the one that would sort of like find good teaching assignments for me to be like, oh, this is the next thing that will teach you these things, which will let you learn to do something bigger and bigger and bigger. So yeah. I think the, the common path was always pretty simple and straightforward for everyone was like, you just do a platform or a door. And like every everyone can do that because it's going to like either move up and down or it's going to move left and right. And then that's all you have to do. Um, you know, yeah, okay. detect the Starting player point. and move. Yeah, And the funny thing is like, like now that I've done more programming, like moving plat, like getting a player to jump on a platform and having it move up is actually terribly difficult, like to do well. But like, I think because it was early in the early in the development of that game, they could say like, yeah. "Oh, make this thing," and it works kind of almost, and they'll let it pass and let you move on to something else. But once you build up your skills, they will have you go back and fix it. Um, yeah. Okay, that makes sense. But yeah, I think, you know, so I did that platform and that was interesting. I was like, okay, I kind of get that. And then they moved me on to, um, I think, some special effects work for, um, I think, one of the enemies. And then they had me program an enemy AI and then they had me program a boss fight. Um, and I think that was probably over maybe, it's hard to remember because it was like so long ago, but that was probably over like a four or five month period um, that they sort of graduated me through those levels of difficulty. And once I got to the point where I did the boss fight, I started feeling feeling a little bit more comfortable, especially like doing that. Um, I mean, they, they basically called us level programmers. Every level would just be assigned to a programmer and you would do the programming for every single object in that level. Um, and I guess the things that were shared between levels, like the main character and weapons would be on a dedicated, you know, main character or camera or um, weapons programmer. Yes. Um, so yeah, it was interesting just like, you know, here's a bunch of different things of different difficulty, and then now the whole level's in your hand, and it's up to you to just, you know, extrapolate from that all the other bits and pieces that have to happen in the level. So I think that one had, like, a, a platforming challenge, so I had to do stuff with, like, platformings, like, platforms, like, you know, crumbling away, or, like, a big complicated sequence of platforms that, like, crumble away in a certain way, and, like, slingshots that appeared, and, you know, like, scripting all that kind of stuff. But I think just sort of giving you a full gamut run of the simplest thing to the most complex thing gave you the confidence yeah. and the, the familiarity with the rest of the systems of how to use them and how to fill out the rest of that level. 
Yeah, okay, I'm with you. Were there any particular favourite things that you kind of worked on over there, whether it's levels or components of levels or et cetera, et cetera? Because I guess all, all of that is technically, I guess, a, a fair, fair jump from UI stuff that you are working on previously. Yep. Um, not to say that one is more or less valuable than the other, but they're, they're significantly different. Yeah. Um, was there any particular favorite things that you kind of worked on? I, th- I think in the early days, I think the thing I was most proud of was for that boss fight, um, uh, they had this sort of, in the in the game design doc, it had a description that the boss would like teleport around. And in order to do the teleportation, I actually implemented this like I, it's really easy to do nowadays, but back then it was far far more complicated. Uh, doing like a, a shader back buffer effect, well, not a shader. There were no shaders, but like a polygonal back buffer effect where it would sort of like warp the background in a way that it would um, the space that the boss was in would sort of get consumed by the background and reappear by yeah. reemerging that. So I think that was one of the first things that I did that like I think people that that I thought were way too smart and I would never be as smart as them were impressed by. Um, and I really okay, enjoyed good. that um, in the in the first game. And then I think I think the thing that I ended up being more proud of, though, is like when... So the first two years, I was a gameplay programmer. The last two years, I was the lead gameplay programmer on the first PS3 Ratchet. And I think the yep. thing I was much more proud of then was two things. One, like getting the working hours down. Um, of just trying to find ways for the gameplay programming team to reuse code more efficiently so that we didn't have to do things multiple times and when we fixed bugs, they'd be fixed once. But also, like, the PS3 had such a complicated architecture that the engine team had, like, a really complicated way of thinking of things in that, you know, as, as a gameplay programmer, you're just so used to writing, like, all this stuff happens in a row, and it's and I can trust that. Where because of the architecture of the PS3, everything had to be, like, you package up this little module, you send it off to SPU, you have to wait, and then you'll get a result back sometime later in the frame. Um, and so, like, just trying to write any bit of code was so complicated for the gameplay programmers. And so, like, I think the proudest achievement I had was, like, trying to find a middle ground of, like, instead of using the technology that the engine group made, how can I structure that in a way that all the programmers would understand but not have to think about? And so what I ended up doing was, like, I split the update loop into three different groups of, like, pre-update and post-update. And I I just said, okay, here's our policy. Here's the things you do in pre-update. Here's the things you do in update. And here's the things you do in post-update. And the gameplay program was no longer have to worry about, like, oh, I started this thing and I've got a handle to this, blah, 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 blah. It would just be, like oh, I'm going to set up a bunch of stuff in pre-update and then I know all the results are already ready for me by update and then that'll trigger a bunch of other stuff and all the results will be ready for me. So it was just like that kind of way of thinking of don't don't obsess about the technology or the algorithm or how to get the most out of it. It's how do you create workflows that actually make it efficient, especially time efficient, to make games. And I think yeah, that's... Imagine. I think that's the first time that concept occurred to me. And I was really, really proud that like, you know, a bunch of people that on on had worked on resistance that were like, well, I just can't get anything to work because there's all these handles I have to do. And sometimes the handles are invalid and sometimes I need to wait longer and I don't know how to wait. And it's like all this kind of stuff that I was just like, well, you know, here, let me let me as the lead, you know, find a framework that everyone will understand. And, you know, we're not 100 percent efficient, but we're still like 80 percent efficient, which is probably well, so, going to be yeah. enough for us, you know, so. So, given you just mentioned resistance, Ed, was there beyond that sort of element? Was there 
much crossover for you between those? Because obviously Tools of Destruction and Resistance Fall of Man were, they released in fairly similar sort of windows. I think they're only about a year apart, if yeah, I remember off that. the top of my head. Yeah. Um, so was there was there much kind of flow through from you? Were you a bit transient and bouncing between both in any respects? Or were you mostly, you know, probably 99% Ratchet? Yeah, I was 99% Ratchet. And I think we did have a shared code base. Um, I think we... Before then, at Insomniac, whenever they finished a project, they would just like literally copy that project and start working on the next one. And this was the first time that we took time to architect like a core code base that was shared between the two projects. So there were some things that like I wrote in the shared code base that made it over to Resistance and they used. Um, but yeah, like, okay. but it was it's very much like I wrote it for Ratchet, and if you if you can find use for it, go for it. But like, if you can't, yeah, then too bad. Um, so yeah, I didn't actually actively work on resist- resistance at all. So of those ratchet games, ending with Tools of Destruction, did you did you have a particular favorite one of those that you worked on? Is there one that sticks out particularly fondly of the lot? I think it's always going to be the first one, especially because yeah, okay. you know it was. I think when Tony did take me under his wing, like it was a really hard time for us because all the genius programmers were moved onto the PS3 project. And so we were, it was all the kids left behind. And then even more complicated, our lead gameplay programmer quit, uh, I think, three days after I started. (laughs) Um, Oh, right. Okay. And so it it really felt like just a bunch of kids. Um, And the fact that we sort of found a way to come together and just pool our knowledge and, I mean, probably work too many hours, but like find a way to get that game done. Like there was just a sense of camaraderie. Like, I don't think... At the beginning of that project, when they announced everyone that was leaving, leaving the Ratchet series to work on Resistance, and then that our lead was was quitting, I think we all thought this was going to be impossible. <laughs> like we just thought, there's no way we can do this. Fair um, enough, too. And then and when yet. the game, yep, yeah, when the game came out, and I think I don't know if it still is, but for quite a while it was the highest reviewed Ratchet game. Um, we were kind of like blown away. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I'd imagine that would feel incredibly good. You've been thrown in the deep end, and then you've actually pulled off a a, a classic in some yeah, ways. Yeah, it was. Yeah, I think that will always, always stick in my memory. I mean, it's it's one of these things as well, like because it's been so long that like it sticks in my memory. I say it sticks in my memory, but like I'm sure the memories I have of it are so inaccurate what actually happened. Um, but there's still yeah, that okay. like that like build up of pride that comes back to you know comes back into my like body when I think about shipping that game. So Tools was the the last title you worked on over at Insomniac. What prompted the departure for you in the end? Because at that point you've you've moved on to Media Molecule at this stage. Yep. Uh, but what what was it a, that prompted the departure? Yeah, so I think it was it's the idea that when I was working on sequels, like you're not learning totally new skills each time. And I think you know with yep. the first when I worked on Ratchet Three, I was a level programmer. When I worked on um, Ratchet Deadlock, I was kind of like a systems e-programmer. And then on Tools of Destruction, I was the lead. And I didn't really think, well, there's not much more space for me to learn new skills working on the Ratchet series. And yeah, okay. and I don't really like working... I mean, I don't think I've ever worked on a game that has realistic violence on it. And it's just something I don't want to do. So Resistance wasn't yep. really a big draw for me. Um, so I just you know decided, well, maybe it's time for me to move on from Insomniac. And I started talking to, like, trying to put my feelers out around studios in the U.S. on what was what was around. 
And I think that was summer around the time, or maybe the summer after that, like Doom 3 and Half-Life 2 and Gears of War, like so many huge shooters came out, were making a ton of money. And every studio I was talking to was making a shooter. And I obviously wasn't, wasn't the thing that I wanted to move on to. So yep. I, I happened to, I think I had a friend who set up a meeting with Media Molecule when they were in town for E3. He'd done like a trip through Europe and happened to meet the Media Molecule team, or maybe intentionally met the Media Molecule team. I'm not too sure. Um, but he came back to LA and he was just like, oh, I met this team and they're based in the UK and they seem to be doing really cool stuff. And he, he would basically just gush to me about how much he loved Alex Evans. <laughs> and he was just like, oh man, these people are amazing. And so I talked to them at E3 and they, they turned out, yeah, I mean, they were absolutely amazing. And the game that they were working on was Little Big Planet and that was like everything I wanted to do. It was platforming, it was local multiplayer, you know, cooperative gameplay, it was creative. I mean, it was, I, you probably couldn't have made a game that was like more perfectly pitched at what I wanted to make, but also more different than what I could find in the, in the States being in development. Yeah, okay. So obviously one of the big things when it comes to Little Big Planet is the whole play, create, share aspect uh what was that like to kind of develop for because there's so many different i guess lenses that you need to look at development through at that point yeah i think so i think at the very beginning i i thought about like i think coming from a platformer background i just sort of thought about like okay what are the platformer thing platformer e things that i can do here and i think the first task that they gave me was to rewrite the camera for Little Big Planet. So I, I think at the beginning, I, I didn't think about the create and share part. And l- like, luckily for me, I never had to think about the share part. That was all like the, the server team and Alex Evans and yeah. um, that group. So, but then I did move on to the create stuff. So I spent a lot of time on Pop It. I had to write all the tutorials for it. Um, yep. And I also worked, you know, very, very closely with the level designers to like come up with new features that would be fun to use in the levels. So I think it was. It was a bit of a transition, but I think the lens wasn't that much of a shift. I think as a gameplay programmer, a lot of my time was always spent, you know, working with designers, thinking about what they want to achieve and helping them achieve those things. And I think the hard adjustment when you're when you're making tools for the public is that you don't know what they want. Um, and so you're trying to speculate on this hypothetical public and what their competence level is and what they're going to understand yes. and what they're going to want to use and what they want to, what they're going to want to create. Um, and so I think that part of it was pretty, pretty difficult. Like, I think we had a lot of discussions on like what, you know, what our average player would be able to understand. And I think, I don't think we ever understood it now, but looking back on it, I think we probably focused on i think we we benefited a lot from focusing on the average player but really the things that stood out that were player created were the the best players you know the best creators yep. and i wonder if we spent more time thinking about what are the best creators going to be doing um if that would have changed the trajectory of things but like i think i, I think the, the nice thing is that like having these two audiences in mind, the player base and the designers, I think a lot of the tools that I thought, oh, I'm making this for the designers, but average players won't use, the av- the like the very advanced players ended up using. Um, Which is but, great. And yeah. uh, I, I think the the well goes very deep on what could have been created with Little Big Planet that was yeah. created with Little yeah. Big Planet and continues to through the sequels over the journey as well. And yeah. obviously, I guess that, that logic also then transitioning over to Dreams, which is obviously a very recent release yeah, as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, 
now your your time at Little Big Planet, uh, sorry, at uh, Media Molecule, I should mm-hmm. say, was uh, was still, uh, I guess, on the briefish side, I suppose. Yeah, I um, think it was under two years. What what was it about? So, was it again the idea that you were going to be moving on to Little Big Planet two at that point, and you felt like you'd, I don't know, said said everything you possibly could with that franchise? Is that kind of what prompted a departure for you? I think so. I think that was a big part of it. Just having worked on sequels before, and I think. I think when I did spend four years at Insomniac working on Ratchet Games, I kind of did look back and think that I thought I would learn a lot more on the on the last Ratchet than I did. Um, and I think there was also a lot of non-development stuff that I wanted to learn more about. Like, I definitely wanted to learn more about, like, interfacing with the community and seeing what they wanted and, like, being able to, like, feedback to them. But I think back then there was nothing, like... Like Twitter wasn't around, you like, and I think a lot of stuff was very tightly controlled on, you know, what you could say to the community and what you couldn't, and yeah, like okay. everything had to be approved through proper channels, um, and that kind of stuff. And I like, I think that was a big part of it that I saw this Twitter thing popping up, and I'm just like, oh man, I wish I could use this to be like, what do little big planet creators want? And in like, and I could just go back to my desk and be like, oh, this is these are all these ideas that the community had, but I think that wasn't you really, really do that back then. Exactly, yeah. you couldn't do that, and especially that like I. I sort of assumed that it'd be literally Planet One and tons of like DLC coming out every like two or three months, um, or yeah. maybe every month. Um, and we made the first DLC, and like that was the Metal Gear Solid pack. And I was like, this is amazing. Like, if we just keep releasing these little packs, like every like month or two months or whatever, this will be incredible. And you know, even if like all the feedback is being funneled through like Sony processes or whatever, like that would be amazing. And so I think I did take it like a, as a bit of a hit when they said actually we're going to work on little big planet 2 for however long it takes before we release yeah. anything else to the public and it's like oh that's that that's like i think it was just a dream of mine that was a little bit shattered um but i think also there were a lot of things like um i wanted to learn more about like the business of game development um i had seen ted price and like I always heard like the rumors of the deals that Ted got from Sony compared to what other deals everyone got from Sony and that kind of stuff. And like I'd never seen any of that. And like all of that was obviously, you know, very hidden from me at Media Molecule as well. So like part of me was was very much itching to like start my own company and just, you know, try to try to see into that world a little bit and see if it's something that I did have a knack for or I, or I didn't have a knack for. But it was just definitely something I was always interested in that I didn't think I could ever get any visibility due to working just as a gameplay programmer in a bigger studio. Yeah, understood. And so that's where Bit Minion, a bit lucky, and Mind Candy all came in. Yep. Over yeah. the course of a four-year period. Yeah. So Bit Minion was my own company. Uh, well, not my own, but like three of us um, started it, and that was really interesting. In that, like, yeah, I I had to like go to those business meetings. I had to try and get deals done. I had to, you know, find partnerships and that kind of stuff. And I think that's when. Yep. I kind of did realize I kind it's not that like I'm incredibly good at it, but I'm not terrible at it. Um, I think Bitmin, okay. like financially, Bitminion has been the most profitable thing I've ever done, even though nobody could name right. the game that we made <laughs> or any, and nobody played it. Um, but you know, I think it definitely made, gave me a little bit of confidence on the business side. And I think the other thing, I mean, for better or worse, that, how the business side does work is once you do have the connections on the business side, it just becomes easier and easier. You know, like I think once, yep. once you've sort of formed a bunch of relationships and you've delivered on the things you've promised, even if things didn't necessarily work out the way you planned them to, I think there's a trust that's there and it does make, 
you know, doing future business deals easier, either with the same people or with people that they know. Yeah, I follow. Um, so, I mean, maybe maybe for the sake of the, the listeners here, maybe you'd care to tell us a little bit about that game that you think no one played or no one really knows about that, that, that Bitminion title. Yeah, the Bitminion title, it was called Monstrosity, and it was sort of... It was a face. It was a game on Facebook, and it was sort of in the um, the pet genre, I guess. I mean, there were there were games like um, Pet Society from Playfish that was, you know, you yep. just come back and you check on your your pet every day. And our little twist was that you had like sort of every level was split up into three different areas. There was like the tabletop, the street level. Um, and there was like the far distant building level. And so like your little monster, every time you fed them, they got a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger. And you would grow monsters that were like tabletop size and they get bigger and bigger. Yeah, and okay. you'd have to like move them out on the street. And they basically um, got joy from destroying things. So you would just tell them to like, you would set up little scenes for them to destroy like they were Godzilla. Um, and that would make them happy. And so it was like, you know, one of these classic, you know, game loop Facebook games where you just come back every day and you check on your monsters and you'd feed them and you'd let them destroy the city and you'd repair, repair the kind of stuff they did. They did. Um, and nice. I, it wasn't a good game. Um, I will admit that first and foremost. Um, but it, it taught me about how, how to get business deals done and the way that that game survived basically was, I mean, it's, I, I've been thinking about this a lot because of GDC being canceled and GDC to me, like, is so important for deal making. So how that game ended up being quote unquote successful, we had about 2 million players, um, was that I went to GDC. I remember the way I justified going to GDC is that year they were giving away free Google Nexus One phones. And I'd never had oh, a right, okay. I'd never had a smartphone before, and I was like, okay, so like if I buy a plane ticket and the cheapest GDC pass, and I get a free phone, that's kind of breaking even. Um, and you know, maybe I'll yeah, maybe I'll get a deal or two, you know, done along the way. And I was um, I was set to meet with a group of people on the Friday of GDC, saying like, oh, why don't we like you know put ads in each other's games so that we can all share users um, and, you know, send users to each other because um, we all have yes. these high-quality, cool art-style games. Um, and and one of them mentioned that they were on this, you know, this beta program with Facebook where if you use Facebook credits as your primary currency in the game, Facebook would send you a bunch of users. Um, and so it's based like free advertising, which was exactly what we wanted because yeah, we, okay. had, we had no budget for, for advertising. Um, and I was just like, oh, well, how do I get on that? And they're like, well, you have to meet the person that's in charge of the Facebook credits program. And I was just like, well, I, I have literally no idea who that is or whatever. And then so I just sent an email to the group that I was going to meet on Friday. I'm like, does anyone know the name of this person so I can like try and cold call them or something? Um, and one of them actually responded saying like, oh, she, I'm actually having lunch with her right now. Uh, she says she has a slot in an hour and a half if you can get to her office. And I was like, <laughs> and so like, I literally was just, you know, at, drop everything and run. Yeah, I, I was at, like at a talk at GCC, drop everything, just jump into cabs, like take, take me to the Facebook head, headquarters. Um, and like, I like, and <laughs> funny enough, with this Nexus one that I, I, the, I just got my first smartphone ever. I'm like trying to figure out emails of like, where am I actually going? What's happening? Um, yeah. And so we get on that um, Facebook credits program and they send us like just tons and tons of users every day um, because they want to like help help boost the Facebook credits um, uh, as a currency and, you know, on the game because most everyone was using their own um, currencies and Facebook wasn't getting a cut of it and Facebook would take a cut of the Facebook credits. Yeah, and okay. so, 
in their so, best interest. Exactly, in their best interest. But obviously, for us with no advertising budget, it was amazing. And then I met with those guys, that group on Friday, um, and you know we set up a cross promotional group. And so there were tons of users coming in from Facebook and from other games. And then we were sharing, like you know recommending each other's games to each other and then that basically ended up being successful enough that it you know generated quite a bit of money in the long 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 run (laughs) yeah good to hear though and obviously helped you develop all those skills that you were talking about before as well exactly yeah and it's interesting it's just that sort of deal making the it's sort of that balance that i was i wrestled with for many years of like you know if you don't ask you don't get right like if i didn't ask for someone to tell me the name of the person or if i didn't ask how did you get those users if i didn't ask can someone connect me to the person that would get me those users you know i i never would have gotten anywhere um absolutely but because i did you know inquire um like i it it made the world of difference and i think that's really important in terms of like business making and in career opportunities like if you don't go for something you're not going to get it um and it's just an attitude i understood but i also think like there's the other side of it where I think there's definitely people that like lean way, way, way too heavily on people sometimes asking for favors or asking for deals that are, that they, they wouldn't give to anyone else and that kind of stuff. So it's, it's, it's finding where do I feel as a business it's person. It's the balancing act. Exactly. Yeah. So as, like, uh, as a business person, where do I want to sit and what do I feel comfortable doing? So then from there, there's a bit lucky in mind candy, but what it all eventually culminated in is, uh, Foam Sword, which yep. is your current, um, your current kind of working uh, scenario, your current business. Um, now, obviously, you you co-formed that studio with Rex. Yep. How and I assume you two date back to your Media Molecule days. Yep. So, how did that all kind of come full circle to a point where you would then be working together and co-founding the studio together? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of that was a bit. I mean, I don't want to say stalkery, but like Rex and I were friends. Like, I think you know we were of the people that commuted down to Guildford every day. Actually, I think he was working uh, two or three days a week at Media Molecule when I was working there full-time. Um, but, like, so, you know, we talked to the on the train, and I remember once I made, like, a prototype for a puzzle game, and he saw me working on that on the train. He's like, oh, if you ever want our assets for that, I can make you some stuff. Um, and, yeah, okay. and just that kind of offer. Like, he was always up for it. Um, and I think I remember specifically in Little Week Planet 1, he'd worked on, like, the intro movie and, like, the idea of, like, setting the scene... Um, but he also worked on the sticker packs and I just loved like his particular like sketchy art style for the sticker packs. Um, and I always like wondered like what would a whole game look like if it was like in Rex's sketchy art style. Um, and so like I pitched games to him con- like I think from the day I left Media Molecule onward, I pitched him, you know, like the idea like, oh, we should work together on a game. We should work together on a game, like just all the time. Really trying to poach uh, him, hey. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> and then so after he finished Tearaway, he came to me and he was just like, oh, um, what do you think about, you know, making like a, a Goonies inspired 80s kids adventure game? And I was like, yeah, sounds perfect. Like, sounds absolutely and there, perfect. There's your genesis of Knights and Bikes right there. Exactly, yeah. He He's just like, let's go out to the pub. Let's chat about game ideas and... He basically pitched his game first, and I was like, yep, I'm in. And I didn't even bother pitching the game idea that I had. <laughs> oh, really? So what, what did you have in mind? Or do you not want to talk about that in case you come back to it? Uh, I probably will come back to it, but it was a puzzle game. Um, but yeah. Okay, But I, cool. I, I never even got to pitching it because I was like, I like this other idea. You were so enamored with the other exactly, idea. Exactly, yeah. Which, to, to be fair, worked out pretty well. Yep, <laughs> I can't <laughs> complain. I definitely can't complain. 
so so in the time that you were developing Knights and Bikes, and I think we'll we'll definitely talk a little bit more about that game specifically and what it is for anyone who's unfamiliar shortly, mm-hmm. you did also kind of work in a freelance capacity on yep. some other titles. You yep. were working with Space 8 games in a freelance capacity. You were working yep. with Mike Bithell in a freelance capacity. I'm assuming was that, uh, given the, the window of time, was that uh, subspace and quarantine circular or one of those? Uh, the first one. Well, I guess I'm credited yep. in both of them, but like quarantine, I literally contributed about two hours of work to that game. Uh, it was based on the code that I built for subsurface, and so they gave, gave me a credit because of that. Um, but I basically oh, okay. didn't work on quarantine. But yeah, so, this, so, so this, what was it like uh, trying to juggle? Sorry, go go for it. Oh yeah, so like the space ape was basically uh, Rex was working on Tearaway Unfolded for the PS4, and we we had had this idea of making this Goonies style game, but like we didn't really say when. And so while he was still busy working on Tearaway Unfolded, I think you know every like every couple months we'd send each other an email or like I built like a Unity prototype or that kind of stuff. But every now and then like we communicate about it. But I still you know had like a had to fill the rest of the time when I wasn't like thinking about this Goonies game. Um, and so that's when I was working for Space Ape. But the Bithel Games project was even stranger in that we had already been fully funded on Kickstarter. And I just reached a point where, because I had been working on the code base while Rex was working on Tearaway Unfolded, I was like, well, the code is kind of as done as it can be, given, you know, how far you are with the art. So I've, I've got to do something else. I need to keep busy. Yeah, I got to <laughs> keep busy. Um, and Mike Bithell, who's a good friend of mine anyway, uh, lived in my building. And so, <laughs> so like a week before he, he came downstairs and he was just like, how would I implement this kind of system in Unity? Uh, and I, you know, I, I gave him like a rough idea of how he'd do it. And then uh, I was like, I'm actually looking for work. So how about I build you that system and you pay me for it? Um, and uh, that system morphed into basically being subsurface circular. Um, and yeah, that was oh, really, fantastic. Yeah, really fun to like, you know, work on a game with Mike, um, especially because he was just upstairs. So if I ever had any questions, we would just like, you know, go out and like there, it was like in a building that had like an outside terrace. So we just like go go outside and like hang out. And Shout out over the, exactly, over yeah, the balcony. exactly. So yeah, <laughs> it was it was an incredible project, and it was like the most efficiently run project I've ever ever seen in my life. Like I've I've never seen a project that ran like on time, on budget, uh, was well reviewed, and was profitable. Like that's just insane. <laughs> I mean, I've I've never never been lucky enough to meet or speak to Mike, but I've I've listened to him a lot over the journey through various interviews or whatever it is he might be doing, and he just seems so organised and so on top of everything. Like there just seems to be a very clear destination, a clear pipeline, and will hit it, um, and just backs him backs himself and his team in. Yeah, yeah, I, I think he always has like an extremely clear vision and like a rough idea of of what the detail what what path the game development is going to take and i think along the yep. di- along the path there's a lot of corrections and a lot of adjustments but i think he always like always. has that clear vision in mind from day 1 and it just makes it really easy as someone who's working with him to like fill in the gaps and be like well i don't have to ask him all these questions because i know the core pillar of this project is this and i can always lean towards yep. that pillar anytime i need to make a decision on my own um and yeah i think yeah, it's it, it's interesting because I think there are a lot of things that I had to learn of like, well, you know, what are the intricacies of working with Mike and what are the inter- 
intricacies of working with Rex, and they're just so such different people. But each one of yeah. them like is very specific about certain things, uh, and it's just like you know being able to context switch between the two programming styles to match their workflows and how how they design was really an interesting fun period because I think I, at the time I was working on subsurface either two or three days a week and nights and bikes the other days. So it was just like every week it's just like, okay, which brain version am I using this Toggling week? And yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it was really, really interesting. And I think the the greatest thing about that is that I think I do one day want to creative direct a game or two and being able to work with these two creative directors that work in such drastically different ways and just trying to learn as much as I can of the pros and cons yeah. of each each process and yeah it was, it was yeah an absolutely incredible time to just be able to watch both of them designing and orchestrating a game um, and being the implementer on both of them yeah. Yeah, I'd imagine it really adds to your your toolkit, quote unquote, when you when you're building so many different, or learning so many different things from various different developers in different ways or designers in different ways. So I'd imagine that'd be really handy for you. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I think because I've not done that much design work, I sort of thought like, oh, there must be a right way to do things. Um, and it's just like seeing two game designers that couldn't be more different about how they approach things Polar opposites. But exactly but both of them producing really incredible work um it just made me feel like well look there's there's this big wide space of creative direction and how creative direction can work and it made yeah. me think rather than oh i need to learn how to do it the proper way i need to look at a space and try and figure out where do i fit into it um and yeah I think, find your own way exactly yeah i think that was a really big eye-opening experience from having you know that period working with both of them at the same time it made me feel like okay i don't have to just be like you know it's a linear path and i'm miles behind both of them and i'm just going to keep running in that direction it very much was oh there's this huge space of how games can be designed and i need to find where i fit in it in it so yeah it's incredible yeah, great. So then obviously the, the primary project being Knights and Bikes. Yep. Now, in case there's anyone listening who's not familiar with the game, could you maybe just talk a little bit about what Knights and Bikes is for starters? Obviously, we've, we've made the little Goonies yeah. references already, but, yeah. uh, but beyond that, what, what actually is the game? So Knights and Bikes is an adventure game where you play um, two girls sort of exploring... Um, the imaginary or fictional island of Penferzi looking for the Penferzi treasure. Um, so it's, you know, one of these mechanics-based games where it's each character has like a set of unique abilities and it's all about cooperation between the two girls, um, but also just capturing the feeling of being a child and going on adventures and using your imagination yeah. to enhance the the somewhat dreary world around you. So there's a balance of like you know, real world problems that the girls have to deal with, but also imaginary problems and imaginary solutions that they come up with. Um, so yeah, it's just a, a really nice um, adventure game about, you know, friendship and imagination. Yeah, great. And it's actually one that, I mean, I, I spent quite a bit of time with when the game came out on PS4. I was actually a Kickstarter backer back in, way back in the day. Um, and Thank you. <laughs> it's, it's a really genuinely fantastic experience. Anyone out there listening now that's not familiar, it's definitely worth considering going looking up. But what was it like... Um, putting the game up on Kickstarter, looking for that funding from the community as opposed to the maybe the the old school mentality, maybe in some cases, the the publisher first. We need we need to lock them down. We need to lock down financing via a publisher of some sort, and then 
then pitch it to the world as opposed to this, which is almost the complete opposite. Where let's let's get the world on board yeah. and then go from there. I mean, I think for me it was a dream. Um, like, as I mentioned, like, that was sort of one of the things that, like, I had a hankering for when I was at Media Molecule is, like, I wanted to be able to talk to people that were really interested in our game and respond to it, you know? And I think Kickstarter was just such a perfect way to do that, to, to pitch a game out there and see what was resonating with people and what wasn't. Um, yep. And just to, like, get such immediate feedback. And also, like, I think I didn't realize it then, but, like, when you pitch a game like Knights and Bikes on Kickstarter that is about, like, you know, friendship and cooperation and that kind of stuff, the kinds of backer it brings is just... Uh, they're just the nicest people. Um, and so it was just such yeah. a wonderful group of people that we collected as our Kickstarter backers. And I think they were always, like, a litmus test for us. Like, we did everything we could to always keep them informed and be as honest as we could with them. And so, like, anytime that you know, we got feedback from them. We knew that, you know, they're people that were originally invested in the vision that we put out there. I think there's a lot of times when you just announce something and, you know, you just post it on Twitter, you get a lot of hate, but you don't know, is this hate coming from someone that was going to hate it no matter what? Or is it coming from someone that would love it, but there's something you're doing wrong that you're not, you know, including them in your vision or something like that, where at least with the yeah, Kickstarter okay. project, you know, everyone's already put their money in. You know, I don't think, think people, many people are like troll backing games because that'd be very expensive. No. Um, so I think it was just a really, really lovely community. And despite the fact that like actually running a campaign is incredibly stressful especially because at the time i think i was still at space ape and rex i think was still at media molecule um it was so stressful but like i think it was definitely worth it in the end and i do it again in a heartbeat okay so that was that was going to be my follow-up question because i think about some news that's broken in the last the last couple of weeks where sabotage the, the team that worked on the messenger they've just gone to uh, gone to the well with kickstarter again mm-hmm. i mean you, you hear some people out there go but they made the messenger it was incredibly successful yeah. how why why are they why are they going back to the well on this one but is is kickstarter something that you would uh, look to pursue again with hypothetical next project whether that's and I'm not pushing for anything here yeah. whether that's a follow up to Nights and Bikes whether that's something different or entirely would would Kickstarter be something you'd want to entertain again for th- those sort of reasons that we were just discussing yeah and I, I think so and I think a lot of people misunderstand the purpose of Kickstarter and I think I misunderstood the purpose of Kickstarter at the beginning I thought you know Kickstarter was a way for us to get a bunch of money uh, to fund the game yeah. and it kind of is that but that's probably the least important part of kickstarter like i think the important part of kickstarter is building a community around your game you know having people that are going to vouch for you having a community and a place for people that are really excited about the game about the game to congregate and discuss things having a community that's going to back the game or that not like i don't mean it back on kickstarter i mean that it's going to shout about it and be excited about it and help spread the word yeah to support the game um i think those are the much more important aspects of kickstarter um and I think the funding is, you know, good and important, but I think there's there's always other ways to get money. I don't think there's as many ways to build a grassroots campaign around your game. Um, no, 100%. Um, exposure is a really hard thing. So if you're able to find a way to do it via the Kickstarter platform, which, as you said, it's, it's not all about the financial aspect, yeah. but it is a, an important component yeah. of it too. If you're able to kind of 
tick both of those boxes at the same time and get that community and that little groundswell of support, I think it makes a huge difference. Yeah, and I think, you as know... purely as an outside observer, of course. Even when we did think about Kickstarter as a money thing, it wasn't so much that like, oh, we're going to go to Kickstarter and just get all the money. It, it wasn't like we looked at it as a bank. We looked at it as like a litmus test of like, if there's not enough people to raise this much money, there probably isn't enough of a market for the game, or at least there yep. isn't enough of a market for the game with the pitch that we have now. Like there's either either the game is wrong or we're explaining it wrong. Um, and I think that was the more important part of just you know having a way to test you know before we made the whole game whether or not there was an audience for it. And it turns out there was quite an audience yeah. and the Kickstarter was quite successful and it became a fantastic product. Uh, what were some of the big challenges that you kind of faced with the with the Kickstarter component, but also, I guess, development big picture as well? I don't think there were... I, I, I definitely don't think Kickstarter added any, like, more complexity to it. I think there were some, like, awkward timing things where we felt really paranoid about, like, how do we tell the Kickstarter backers first without ruining reveals on stuff? Or, you know, how do we make yeah. sure that the platform, like, I think there were little things like that of like, oh, well, we'd love to shout about this to press first, but then our Kickstarter backers would feel betrayed if the way they found out about some big change in the project was, you know, through the press. Like, they should definitely always hear yes. from everything through us. So I think maybe like minor things like that. But I think for the most part, the Kickstarter backers were just great. Like they having the monthly backer update go out on the first every month, it just made us, you know, forced us every month to re or take a look back at what we'd done that month and evaluate our velocity as a, on a, as a project. But I think for me as a programmer, like you know, it always made me look back at oh, what is all the stuff I did this month so I could write about it. But it also made me feel really good every month. It was like oh wow, I actually did a lot of work this month. Um, so I think just having the backers there was really, really valuable. Um, and I can't really think of any drawbacks. Um, so I guess then, so obviously it was valuable for you in that sense, but I guess it also created a degree of an, of accountability in some ways as well. Yeah, but I think I think accountability is really good. Like I think it, you know. It, 100%. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, ha not having that there, it's easy to like just drift or like spend too much time just polishing one thing up and not actually having enough to show at the end of the month. Um, yes. So I think it, it's not like we would say like, oh, what's in the backer update and work backwards from that. But like you would always have it in the back of your mind of just like, well, you know, what like what am I working on this month? And like, how do I make sure that there's something really exciting for me to write about in the backer update? I understood. Uh, and obviously uh, working on what was a, starting to become an increasingly higher profile project as, as the development continued but in a much smaller team, like the much smaller setting and team compared to what you did with the likes of Insomniac and Mini Molecule, what was that kind of like for you as well? Because that, that would be very different in terms of what you're in control of, um, what is someone else's responsibility, all those sorts of things. The, there's different layers to it when you're in different uh, a different scale there. So what was that like for you being small small production team, um, but still having to tick essentially all the same boxes at the end of the day? Yeah, I mean, I think there's some times when you do feel it when I think, for example, like on the QA front until Double Fine's QA fully rolled on to the project, it was like, oh, well, I have to spend my time QAing this demo build for, you know, this show or this kind of stuff or that. Yeah. But I think for the most part, it streamlined everything. Like, 
I think there's so much time spent in bigger teams trying to get everyone on the same page. Um, you spend so much yeah, time okay. like discussing stuff or whatever, and for the most part, like I just roll out of bed and start typing. And Rex and I just have such a strange way of working together that like we almost never talk anyway. Like we very much collaborate by creating. Like if I have an okay. idea, I'm not going to write a design doc. I'm not going to like call him up and chat about it. I'm not going to type up about it in Slack. I'm going to build a prototype. And let him play it. And if he thinks it's fun, he will add art. And if he thinks it's not fun, he will not add art. <laughs> and it will die. It will die somewhere in you know the graveyard of development. And likewise, <laughs> if he if he you know draws something up, and I think I understand how this is going to fit in the level, then I program it. Uh, and if I have no idea what in the world it's for, I will say I don't know what this is for. Uh, so um, you can either try to explain it, or you can change it to something that like more naturally makes sense to. Because I think the thing is, if it doesn't make sense to me, it's not going to make intuitive sense to a player what the gameplay mechanic is. And so yeah, I think there's, there's just so much stuff that like we just collaborated by just I would code stuff and put it in and he would add art if he thought it was good and he would add a bunch of art and if I thought it looked good, which it almost always did, uh, I would program it. And that's just basically how we worked. Um, and it was such a like, I don't know, it was, it was so I don't know what the like it felt like a burden was lifted. Like, I, yeah, okay. I just had such, like, especially the last company I worked at was Mind Candy, and it was, like, meetings to the nines. And, like, just oh, the right, idea okay. that, like, I would have an idea, and I would have to wait for the next slot for a meeting, which would be, like, two or three days later, and then I'd pitch it, and then they would take a couple days and say, like, oh, do we like this or do we not? And then they'd feed it back, and then I'd, you know, schedule it for the next sprint yeah. in our whatever, and then it would, you know, it would get prioritized by the team, and then if it didn't make this cut, then it was on a backlog somewhere and maybe it would get like i could just think of something and i just start typing and it was in like you know it was in and playable within an hour or two <laughs> it's just like it's just a, such no, that's a different fantastic world. i can appreciate that yeah so i i really really enjoyed that part of the process for sure now post-launch since since the game initially came out uh and actually and go inside baseball for the listeners here this is actually the second time we've got to do this yep. <laughs> uh but this this wasn't actually news when we last spoke that the game at the time was on the way but is now released on the switch yep. uh so what was it like developing for the switch is it is it the same build were there were there little differences that you've had to make to the final product uh what was it like developing for the switch so i assumed so i think we we had done like one build on the switch like i think nintendo aggressively made sure we got some development hardware and i was like okay well like they gave us the hardware i'm gonna make a build um and this was probably maybe a year before we launched on the other platforms i made a build it ran at like one or two frames per second and i was just like i was just (laughs) like well i'm not gonna spend any more time on that because like if it ran at like 10 or 15 frames per second, I, was, I, I might have thought about like, oh, maybe we can co-launch with this and I can like, you know, double or triple the frame rate. But like, I can't yep. 30, I can't 30x the frame rate. Like, that's just not going to happen. No, uh, I follow you. Yeah. So I pretty much just put the, the Switch development kit like in a drawer until like after we launched. <laughs> um, and, you know. So there was, there was always the intent to go back though. It was just a, it's a later problem. I don't know. I was not convinced that we would ever be able to re- release it for Switch because um, it was running so yeah, okay. badly. And like, so, you know, like, I guess 
as a programmer, when you fail so miserably at something, <laughs> there's always a bit of it like going on in the back of your head and you're trying to solve these things. So, like in my head, I'm just like, okay, so I'm going to have this plan where we like hide half the stuff and the camera's super zoomed in and we're going to do this kind of stuff. And like, and then so like when I actually went to uh, start looking at the Switch port um, after it had come out on PS4 and um, PC, um, there was a new version of Unity and all this other like, um, new stuff from Nintendo, and I was just like, okay, well, at least I'll, like, update to the new version, or, like, the new-ish version of Unity, because I had had a chat with Nintendo at GDC that year, and they're like, oh, you ha- you need to be on the new version of Unity, because it's not, it's never gonna run okay on the old one. I'm like, okay, and so, like, I built on that one, and it was, uh, I think it was, like, eight frames per second. I'm like, okay, maybe this is doable, this. like, I could, maybe I can work with this, um, and I had, uh, done like one quick experiment on ps4 like an optimization experiment where basically i was trying to find a way to analyze the level to find the way that like it would so basically in nights and bikes every level is just like like fifty thousand sprites (laughs) literally rex just drops like a billion sprites in and that's it um and on any given view we usually have about uh, somewhere around a thousand sprites rendering and a thousand sprites is a thousand draw calls and that is how you run it three frames per second um yeah i can see it and so the way you i i thought about it is like well if we can start you know putting a lot of these sprites on sprite sheets and trying to figure out what sprites end up together and rendering in what order like i can optimize a little bit and so i did a pass of this on ps4 um and so i basically was able to like save like 20 or 25 percent of the draw calls um with this algorithm i had written to like analyze the levels that rex had made and then like do whatever and i was just like well that's just not going to be enough um so i just started staring at the algorithm algorithm i wrote and i think i just kept thinking like well there's got to be a better way to do this and i was like that one was that algorithm was basically like what kinds of sprites appear near other sprites and i'm just like what if i actually took every single sprite and i generated like this graph uh of nodes of probabilistically what sprite will render next and then i walk that insanely like it's just 50,000 nodes of 50,000 yes. node graph tree to try and generate sprite sheets and i was just like would that would that actually like make a better result or like a significantly better result and i'm like i, I the only way to do it is try it and i tried it and it basically saved 80 percent of the draw calls so we are already at 5x this frame rate so that took me from like you know probably eight frames per second to like 20 or 22 or 23 frames per second i was like okay well like to get Much closer at that point exactly like to get to the the other like eight uh frames per second i'm gonna just sit there and profile and fix stuff and do whatever um and so yeah it was it was an interesting process because it was 100 my assumption the entire development time that either it wasn't coming out on switch or we would like have to delete half the sprites because like i was just like i literally yeah, okay. i literally have no idea how else it would work but with the new um version of unity and this um sprite batching thing that i did it you know it was close enough that i could start looking for smaller wins and like there was there was a ton of like small wins that we got that basically incrementally got us the proper frame rate um but yeah it was (laughs) it was definitely dicey for a bit um and it took quite a lot of time to figure all that kind of stuff out um but i'm glad we did it like I i i think the the thing that always kept me going is i just felt like it was such a game suited for the switch you know it's like a co-op game and like i remember 
even in like the the three frame per second version i built like a test level version and the one thing i did implement was back then was like if you took the two joy cons off you are now playing local co-op with two players and if you put them back on you're yeah. one player and i was just like that's like there's something magical about that that i think is really special um so like i, I think agree. that always kept me motivated to try and get the switch version r- running but like it never occurred to me that I would be able to do the entire Switch port without ever asking Rex to change anything. <laughs> like, that kind of blew my mind. I mean, that, that's a fair effort in the end, then. Yeah. So Now, obviously, we were talking before about the fact that with our current world climate, there's there's more people sitting at home and they'll have their consoles out or their Switch out or whatever. Um Obviously, when, when Knights and Bikes first came out, there obviously would have been a massive number of downloads initially yep. because of the Kickstarter backers. Uh, I'm assuming, based on the fact that you did bring it across to Switch, that there was some continued success well beyond that as well. Like the, the, the word of mouth had gotten out there and pe- other people were jumping on and buying and that it was, it was justified as well to bring it across the Switch. Yeah. I assume with the current situation without diving too inside baseball and your numbers and all those sorts of things, because I'm sure they're sort of things you want to keep to yourself by and large. Has there been a little bit of an upswing given where we're at and a lot of people trapped in their homes? Yeah, I mean, it's it's always hard to like tell what the what the cause of this kind of stuff is. But yeah, we definitely did see like an uptick in sales. And I think the, the thing that makes it hard to calculate is that like our uh, IGF win was about the same time that everyone got locked up. <laughs> um, oh, right. Okay. But like, I think, you know, those two things really did combine well at the same time. And, you know, we've had one of the strongest sales weeks. We've, I mean, definitely the strongest sales week we've had since launch um, on oh, our platform. So like, it's, it's, it's definitely a great time for us and a really exciting time for, I mean, obviously it's not like I would have willed this to happen so that I could get no, no, a bump in sales. No, no, horrible but, context. <clears throat> no, for yeah. sure. But, but I also Make, think, making hay while the sun shines. Yeah, but I also think it's really nice in that I think it is the kind of game that, like, you know, if you were, you know, at home and you're, you know, you're at home with your girlfriend or a sibling or, you know, it's it's the kind of game that does make sense to, you know, sit down for three or four two-hour sessions and to play through, yeah. like, together and just have a lot of fun or to just or to even just load it up and mess around. Like, I think it does have that kind of escapism from the real world uh as a theme in the game and it did it's like in a meta way it kind of does provide the thing that is a theme um of like it is a great way to you know to to be a kid again to just run around the world and like i think there's so many games that are like so specifically aimed at like oh you're trying to optimize this and you're trying to solve these problems and this kind of stuff and i feel like there's some of that in knights and bikes but i think a lot of it you know, does like I, one of the prototypes we did is that we made sure that even in an empty room with the abilities that you have between the two girls, there's enough play that you could have that you could have fun. Um, so it was all about like yeah. how the girls' different abilities interacted. So it was even stupid stuff like, you know, Demelza has uh, a power glove that she can use to control enemies, but we made sure that like, oh, she can control enemies, but she can also control like the water balloon that Nessa drops or the stereo that Nessa drops. Like, you know, just the yeah. kind of stuff that like that kids would do and kids would try um, that, you know, we made sure that it was a bit of a sandbox playground for people. And I think that's something that could be really valuable at a time like this. No, absolutely. I, th- I think it's one of the, look. There's there's not many good things to come out of this <laughs> this current situation. But if 
people are experiencing things they may not have otherwise experienced, whether they're games or films or television shows or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. Experiencing other other creative products, I think that's still that's still a win yep. in, a, yep. in an otherwise horrible circumstance. Yeah. It seems like um, Nights and Bikes is one of those games that's getting out there and being expo- like more people being exposed to, it. and I think that's great because it is a, a wonderfully creative title. Um, certainly very different to a lot of the stuff that's out there and I think people need that more yeah, um, more, perhaps more so than ever at the moment yeah. so right place and right time in a lot of ways yeah, I think the, it's the, worked out nicely for the me. only thing that everyone's been calling out that like <laughs> was definitely not intentional our part is that like the game opens on a giant um uh, a giant ferry full of loo roll, <laughs> and so it's just like it's oh, almost yeah. like that we've we've been hoarding all the loo roll in our game. I was like, I don't <laughs> know how that coincidence ended up being so like topically just, relevant. Just, res- <laughs> just respond with the release date if yeah. anyone <laughs> exactly <laughs> if yeah. anyone asks. <laughs> yep. We were ahead of the curve. We were trendsetters. Yeah. Um, so as we as we cycle things back to you, specifically in your your career and some of the big picture stuff. Is there anyone out there in the industry that really inspires you that you kind of look up to and maybe have tried to model some of your work on? Obviously, we've mentioned Mike, we've mentioned Rex, but there might be some others as well. Is there anyone else that you've really kind of tried to model yourself on in some ways? Or I'm trying to think. There's definitely, I mean, I, I definitely am like a big fan of Matt Thorson and Noel yes. Berry of the Celeste team, um, but also their artists, Amora and um, Pedro. I think they're really great. Um, I think... I mean, there, there's so many people that I look up to that I don't think I could ever replicate the kinds of things they do. Um, like, I think about, you know, Jason Roberts all the time and Goro Goa, um, and I'm just like, my brain is not wired to do that, but I wish it was. Um, I think there's, yeah, there's a ton of creatives. I, I um, Dan Marshall is another one that I really look up to right now. Um, I think he's just been doing the indie indie scene or indie thing for so long and has, like, such a great track record of producing really great content um right now like um ed fear is another uk developer um he just released a game called murder by numbers um that is like a a hero of mine um i've i've always 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 wanted to work with him and it's it's funny because i remember a lot of my inspiration comes from there was just this one meetup um i can't even remember who was organized it was when mike bithel was moving to london called gdc left behind and it was all the people that couldn't afford to go to gdc and in that one meeting, I met Mike Bithell, Andrew Smith, Ed Fear, and I was just like, I'm going to work with all these guys. Like, these, they are incredible people. Um, this night, like, kind of defined my career. And I've so far, I've been able to work with Mike and Andrew, and I just never haven't gotten a chance to work with Ed yet. But I think there's there's so much stuff coming out so quickly. Um, I'm, I'm really gutted that GDC got canceled because there's like, um, I was really looking forward to missing. Um, meeting like cc who made um lion killer uh that was nominated for yes. igf um narrative award um but i i mean there's so many people i look up to and so much interesting work being done that i just i'm i, I could Hard sit here and one. talk for hours and hours exactly but there's there's so much amazing game stuff being made that's so different and like there's so many projects coming out every year that you never would have envisioned three or four years earlier and i'm really excited about that direction and yeah one day as i said i want to figure out where where my ideas fit in the space between a mike bithel and a rex (laughs) crawl yeah okay i follow you yeah and i mean from what you've described yeah they are almost polar opposites in a lot of ways so to, to be able to carve out your own 
niche somewhere in that is totally understandable and fantastic. Yeah. So what have been some of the uh, most valuable lessons you've kind of learned over your journey in the games industry so far? Interesting. Yeah, I think I think one of the things that I've learned massively is that you do need to take the time to invest in yourself. I think a lot of people do look at my career and think about times I've left incredible situations. And each time it's been to develop a different skill that I didn't think I'd be able to develop if I stayed yeah. where I was. And I think that's always turned out to be right. Um, I think any time that I wanted to learn something and I didn't think I could learn it in the studio I was currently employed by, I think in the long run, it's always been valuable. I think I've always fought for, you know, trying to get my voice heard um, because I I was interested in, you know, the design side of things and I was interested in that kind of stuff. So I think... I think that's probably one big lesson I've learned. And I guess the other big lesson is like, you really need to be nice to everyone. (laughs) Like um, in my early days, I was not the nicest person to work with. I was very, I don't know how to say it. Like I was, I prioritized the game more than I prioritized the the people. Like the the game was the end goal and everyone was a tool to get that done to quality. And I, I regret very heavily how how I treated people at Insomniac, um, but also some of my early days at Media Molecule because I think I just had that completely backwards. And like, it took me a while to realize that you really just want to treat everyone well, and that's how you're going to make the best game. I understood, and I mean, it's I think that that aspect is something that I think in people in various professions have fallen into a trap over over the journey. I, I think about myself as a teacher now, obviously the nature of my, my particular job is I'm working with people all the time. Yep. But it's it's easy to fall into the trap of being focused purely on the result and yep. the outcome um, and forget that you are working with people. Yep. Um, and there's, there's many layers and aspects to that. So I, I can completely understand um, falling into that trap and, and recognizing that, it's not necessarily the the right or best way. It obviously depends on the different roles and jobs and professions. But um, no, I completely understand it myself. So, uh, what about some of those challenges that you've experienced over the over the journey? What, what's kind of been the biggest challenge that you've you feel like you've had to overcome? I'm trying to think, I think I've had it pretty lucky on a lot of vectors. I think the biggest challenge that I think I've always had is as a programmer trying to get out of that programming role. Um, yeah. Actually, I was, <laughs> I actually remember that like one of the things that really spurred me on was um, Mark Cerny was a consultant at Insomniac while I was working there. And we had just gone to a design meeting and they pulled me in as the programmer to just say like, oh, this is possible, this is not possible, this is possible, this is not possible. Um, yeah. but, but, you know, like there were times where I'd say like, well, this is possible, but like this would be much more fun and be a lot easier to implement for the gameplay programmer and this kind of stuff. And Mark pulled me aside in the kitchen afterward and he's just like, you know, he's like, you should be able to to contribute to all the game design discussions because you really have a mind for it. So make sure that, you know, you're not just there saying, yes, this is possible this is possible, this is not possible, this is not possible because, you know, inherent in game programming is a lot of game design and a lot of small decisions that you're making constantly on how, you know, 
whether it's the small number tweaking in the curves or whether it's how these systems um, string together and what that does enable and what that doesn't enable and what kinds of player behaviors that does enable or doesn't enable and that's this kind of stuff. Um, and yeah, he gave me like a really big pep, pep talk to focus on like my game design stuff. And I think since then I've been trying to flex those muscles more and more, but I just haven't really found a context where I have the time and the platform to do so. Yeah. No, I mean, look, I think uh, when, when Mark Cerny comes and talks to you and gives you a bit of a pep talk, I think I think everybody listens when that opportunity emerges. He, he's always struck me, and again, without meeting him or ever speaking to him, he always seems like the, the smartest person in the room, yep. for want of a better phrase. He just leaps and bounds ahead of everyone else. So I think uh, any feedback you can get some, from someone like that, I think is probably incredibly valuable. Yep. So what about highlights? So on the flip side there, we've discussed challenges, but uh, there's there's going to be a few highlights over the journey. You obviously worked on some fantastic games over, over the years, but what's what's been perhaps that that biggest uh, milestone or greatest achievement you think you've Oof. you've reached over the journey there? Um, something that I guess if you're having a bad day, you're able to think back on and go, yeah, okay, and it helps you get out of that funk. This is going to sound really weird, um, and I actually just uh, told this story recently on Twitter. But like, this is like when I feel down about game development, I I always think back to this one moment, and it was you know on Ratchet Three. We were making the first um, disc build of the game so that we could send it off to uh, Foster City, Sony and Foster City uh, yep. for playtesting. And basically the policy was like um, the release manager would come around and say, everyone stop checking in. We're making a disc um, and everyone would stop working. But like they, they kept doing this every day. They'd be like, we're making a disc, blah, blah, blah. And then like the disc would never build. Like, we never, ever got a disc. Um, and so, like, yeah. I got into a habit of, like, every time they tell me to stop working, like, it's just inefficient. Like, I, I have, so, you know, I was obsessed with getting, you know, all my hours of efficiency in. I'm just going to keep working through it because they're liars when they say that they were going to make a disc. And lo and behold, I keep working. The first disc comes out. It crashes on load. It's my code. Oh, good. <laughs> it is oh, my no. code that is crashing on load. Um, and and so the release manager comes out and says, like, you know, did anyone check anything in? I told you all to stop, blah, blah, blah. And I was just, I genuinely thought they were just going to fire me. Like, I, you know, it's my first job. I didn't know, <laughs> like, it's the first disc. They made it seem like it was a really important thing. And I'm like, I'm just going to get fired. And I remember Tony... Um, you know, the guy that took me under his wing, he's just like, shut up, go away, make another disc. <laughs> um, and he just, you know, he just like, just told them to, you know, I mean, he used a bit more flowery language, but he was just like, just go yes. make another disc. It's fine. Don't worry about it. It was a fluke. Leave it. And I think just that, that moment that someone had my back to that level. And especially like at that moment, I thought I was going to be fired. And then he just basically told someone to leave me alone. And it was just... I always think back to that whenever like I feel down about the games industry like I just think about like that project and how someone believed in me enough to like come sit by me come mentor me and come protect me when I did terrible things and broke builds um I think that probably is like the highlight of like my career like I always think back to that and I think that's the thing that like that makes me think back to like how I want to run studios what role I want to take 
you know, in the industry with people. Like I want to mentor people and I want to help protect people and I want to help people develop their skills and give them, you know, the safety net to make mistakes and take risks. Um, And I always do think back to that. Um, I think that's probably like one of the, the highest highlights of my career. I guess by extension though. So obviously in that case, that was one person defending you there. What happened with Knights and Bikes though is you basically accumulated thousands of people that would defend you rex and the team in many ways now obviously there's the you know there might be one or two that maybe in the, in that community that maybe get a little bit too abrasive and maybe can be a little bit ridiculous at times, <laughs> quote unquote. that's purely my language they're not yours yeah no no, no. um but you you kind of accumulated a crowd of thousands there that rallied behind you and the team as well so i'd imagine that's a very satisfying feeling it, it, de- it def- absolutely is a very very satisfying in similar, feeling in a similar sort of way and yeah but like in there I, I would say like there actually hasn't been anyone that's gone out of line i mean we've gotten like maybe over, oh, right. over like the three years of the campaign we probably got like three angry comments or something like that um yeah, so okay. it's like almost nobody's gotten out of line i think the difference is that i don't feel as vulnerable now um and obviously i love having those people and i love having people believe in me um, and it's really great that people bought into our vision, but like, I think it's uh, for some reason to me, they're just on different tiers. Um, like, oh, for sure. like, and I obviously do like, you know, we have like a handful of super fans that are just absolutely amazing. And you see that the lengths they go through to do stuff like they <laughs> dress up as our characters, they buy every single thing we release. Um, and it, it does make you feel so good for sure. But yeah, I, I definitely think like, I spend a lot more time thinking about me as a developer and how I can interact and how I can contribute positively to future developers. Um, and I think I think as time has gone on, I've become less and less focused on like how the audience or critics or anyone else responds to my work. Like I think yep. I think it's always great, but like, and I I really do appreciate it, but I always feel like. Like, it might, it might, some of it might come from the fact that, like, as a gameplay programmer, like, a lot of it is, you know, I'm often implementing the ideas of others. Like, that's a lot of my role. Um, and a lot of yeah. it does include a lot of interpretation and that kind of stuff. But, like, I think, you know, for example, people that resonate really heavily with the story of Knights and Bikes, like, I think, I think that's great, but it's also, like, I think Rex probably feels the joy from that a lot more because it's the story of his childhood growing up in Cornwall and a lot of the experiences he went through. Um, yeah, understood. And so I think I think there is like a little bit of a disconnect. Like even, I mean, this is going to sound. I mean, it's not going to sound weird. This probably makes perfect sense. You know, when when we won the IGF last week, part of me, you know, thinks, "Oh, great, we won an IGF." Part of me thinks, "Oh, well, Rex won an IGF." You know, it's artistic achievement. Rex is the artist. Yeah. You know, like okay, right. it's. I think as I've gone on on my career, like I don't have imposter syndrome in that, like I think I'm not a good programmer, but I do have imposter syndrome in like I find it nearly impossible to take credit for things. Um, I always feel so distanced from it, and like when I think of like really proud achievements, this is going to sound really weird, but like you know, Subsurface Circular came out and people loved it, and but the thing I felt really prideful about wasn't that people loved it and I made a game in, you know, I think I spent 30 days programming that whole game. Um, it was that Nick Tringali, who was the technical artist on Subsurface Circular, was able to take 
the code base that I made and ship an entire game off of it. And, you know, and then when we met at GDC, he told me, like, looking at your code base taught me how a code base should be structured. And now I feel oh, great. Co- and it made him confident enough to elevate himself from a technical artist to a game programmer. Uh, and then he did a bunch of level design and game programming on John Wick Hex. And, like, that, like, <laughs> I mean, we were eating, you know, giant breakfast burritos i wasn't just gonna tear ball there but like it really did make me feel like i was gonna tear up i don't i don't know what it is that's weird about me but those are the moments that really really strike me um like i think it's really hard for me to take credit for like when fans love our games i always think it's the work that someone else has done and i think that's just like a block that i have but at the same time, I can appreciate it. you are you are a member of a team. So for any one person to sit there and take it, take the credit themselves would be probably unwarranted unless they are a solo yeah. developer, um, yeah. completely solo. Then no, I don't blame you whatsoever in that respect. Yeah, it's it's a weird one. Yeah, <laughs> I, I I don't deny that. Like I think that might be a weird thing that's like mostly me because I actually did release one solo project and that was an iOS game called Ring Fling. Uh, and I think that's one of the few times that I felt pride when the audience reached out. Like actually literally like maybe three months ago, someone DM'd me on Twitter was just like, did you make Ring Fling? Like I can't find it anywhere. <laughs> I love it and I miss it. And I'm just like, no, it's dead. Like that game is as dead as can be. Um but yeah, I think I think when I work on things with others, it's so easy for me to think that like I just did the typing part of the game and they made the rest. I don't know why, but yeah. <laughs> that's just how I think about it. Well, speaking of taking credit for things, the our one last and this is a big hypothetical question here: uh, if you could have been credited in any capacity for any game that's ever existed, so you can retroactively add your name into the credits for something, mm. what game would it be? <sighs> I mean, it's probably, I mean, any game. Absolutely anything. Like. Big or small. You can even just be there as special thanks if that's if that's all you're looking I for. I mean, it's almost definitely going to be Gorogoa. Like, I. Yeah, okay. My brain just cannot fathom how that game exists. Like, it's, it's. Like, there's so many games that, like, I'm inspired by and I think I want to make something like that. And Gorogoa is, like, the one game that I'm, like. That is the most amazing game that I would never, ever, ever try to make. Um, <laughs> and I think it's absolutely incredible. So I certainly played that and it broke my brain. I, I still don't know how I actually got through it. I think it was there was a bit of just <laughs> stumbling and bumbling blindly for a fair fair period there. But there's there's layers to that. Yeah, thing that, that game is... I just can't comprehend. Yep. <laughs> like, like, it's hard enough to play. And then you try and think about how do you design that? And I just... <laughs> that's where that's where my brain just explodes <laughs> so Moo, thank you very much for coming aboard the show today uh if people are looking to go and try out nights and bikes it is available now um so go out and get it on what well, so we got it on ps4 we've got it on switch we've got it on pc is yep. it available elsewhere is it on the xbox at all no nope, not on xbox no, no. so yeah it's on so steam you... or gog um on pc and then yeah on ps4 and switch so go and get it now. You are going to be trapped at home for a little while, world. So this is a perfect opportunity to go and try out a fantastic game. Uh, but Moo, if people were looking to reach out to you, get in contact with you, learn more about the game or future titles, TBA, um, 
where would they be best to go? Uh, you can find me on Twitter. I'm one of Moo, O-N-E-O-F-M-O-O. Perfect. Thank you very much for that. Um, and like I said before, it was, it was fantastic to have you on the show for a second time. Yep. <laughs> um, I'm glad we, we got we got through this one, so no, no technical hiccups this time. Uh, but it's been fantastic to learn about your story, to be able to talk to you about it and engage with it. Uh, and speaking for myself, but I also think the listeners as well, uh, we're very much looking forward to seeing where that journey goes from here, whether that is, in fact, you looking to carve that niche between yourself, uh, sorry, between Rex and Mike <laughs> or, or whatever ultimately happens from there. Um, I think we're all going to be watching very closely and are looking forward to seeing whatever comes next. Great. Thank you very much. And thank you for taking the time to talk to me. I, I sometimes find, you know, these kinds of conversations that I often learn a lot of things about myself that I didn't know <laughs> beforehand. And so I think, thank you so much for taking the time to help me explore my own psyche and my own thoughts. Well, I, I hope that was valuable for you then. And listeners, I hope that you really enjoyed that as well. Thank you very much for watch, uh, listening and I will see you next time. That concludes this entry of Dev Diary. Be sure to subscribe to this feed, share it with your friends, and give us a five-star review to help boost the show up the charts for greater exposure. If you have any people you would like me to reach out to an interview, then please find me at Paul James Games on Twitter to help me get in touch with them. Until our next episode, however, that's been Moo's Story. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you next time.